It's great to be with you this morning, worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and open His Word. So would you turn to Daniel, the first chapter? I think this is a story that all of us know well, but it is one that I've gone back to repeatedly in my life, to look at the example that God gives us in the Scripture about some young men who were in a difficult situation. Now, this first chapter is about some teenagers. Anybody in here a teenager? Okay, we've got several. I see that hand back there. Cecile? Do we have any ex-teenagers in the audience? It's, 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 hard to, it's hard to remember some of it. But the story does go on beyond this first chapter, so after this they get older. But it seems it's very likely that the story begins with some very young men, maybe about this age on the front row down here. And it's an unusual story. It's a very interesting story from the history of Israel and what was happening and what God was doing in their midst. And it's a story that, for me, I believe is relative to many times in our lives that we go through transitions, We face new challenges, sometimes tragedies. We see an example of faith here in which a group of young men brought honor to God in a very, very difficult situation. So join with me as I read. I'll begin reading Daniel 1, verses 1 to 4, and then we'll walk down through most of the rest of the chapter this morning. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking. Is this you guys down here in the front? (laughs) Young men without any physical defect, good-looking. Oh, my goodness. Suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The shocking phrase in this passage, if we look at the history of Israel and we look at the history of religion around the world, is that first part of verse 2. The Lord handed Jehoiakim king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. The year is 605 B.C. It had been over a hundred years since that northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. Their kings and their leadership and that whole northern kingdom had turned away from the Lord and God had judged them and they had been no more now for over a hundred years. And Judah was the remnant. 
Judah was to be those who were left who were faithful to God, and yet they too showed their unfaithfulness to God repeatedly. He sent prophets to them to warn them to be serious about their faith, to trust Him, to believe Him, not to turn to other gods. And they repeatedly turned to other gods, such as Baal. And God said, I will eventually have to judge you. I will have to punish you if you do not turn to me. And the people did not listen. So in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the growing empire of Babylon, a huge, powerful kingdom, came down to Jerusalem, surrounded it with his army, and forced the city to surrender. The shock in this is that throughout history, nations who've won great military victories have always thought that it was because their God caused it to happen. In this case, this is a paradigm shift. This is a shock to Israel as much as to the rest of the world. This time God said, I have to get your attention. And now I, God, the God of Judah, will cause Judah to fall militarily. That was a shock. It was a shock to the people. It was a shock to the Jews. They assumed because God was their God that they could never be defeated. And he finally had to say, I've got to get your attention. You're not listening to me. And so God handed them over to the king of Babylon. Now, in the bigger picture, God had a plan. He was going to work a miracle in their own hearts in these next 70 years to turn them literally back to Him in a way they had never followed Him before. But in this process, on this day, this is a description of a disaster. Their nation has fallen. An enemy army has taken Jerusalem. Now, You know, I'm a patriotic American. It's really hard for me to imagine this because it's never happened to us. This has never happened in our short history so far. We don't have any historical memory of this kind of... Well, some of the Southerners do, but that's another thing. We do not have a national memory of anything like this in our history. It's hard for us to even realize what it must be like to have a foreign army come and take our country, defeat our king. And so, this is a national defeat. It's a disaster. But it's more than that, because as we read the story, not only did their nation fall, but now Nebuchadnezzar sent his officials into the temple of God. Solomon's temple. The place where now for almost 400 years the people have come to worship God Almighty, Yahweh. The place where the sacrifices are. The place where the Levites are there to receive our offerings and present them to God. The place of prayer, the place of worship. 400 years. And the Babylonians desecrate. They go in and take some of the most expensive and holy items of worship. And they carry them out of the temple and back to Babylon. 
They're not put into the treasury of the king. They're put into the treasury of the primary god of Babylon, whom historians usually call Marduk. Sometimes he is referred to as Bel. But if we use his Old Testament name, it is Baal, the very god that the Jews had been running to and trusting and praying and sacrificing to and following instead of God Almighty into his treasury and his temple, the very holy things from the temple of God are taken. And then we see that then he decided to take. Now, this is the first deportation, 605 B.C. Over the next 20 years, most of the Jews are going to be taken to Babylon. This is the very first wave of that. And he chooses to take the very best. The young, the good-looking, the smart, all of these young men down here. That's who he takes. The best of the best is who he took. And now those young men find themselves far from home. I can't even imagine what they must have been going through. What they must have been thinking. But this is what we know. Their nation has fallen. Worship as they've always known it has ended. These young men will never see the temple again. They'll never go in and see the sacrifices to God in the temple. It'll never happen in their lives again. And now taken captive to be servants of the king who did this to their nation. I've never had any kind of challenge like that in my life. Now, I actually like change. I'm like some of you. I I love change. I, I love a new challenge as long as I get to plan it and be in charge of it. I really don't like it when somebody else does it and it happens to me. I'm usually dragging my feet. But if I get to plan it and it's all worked out in my head beforehand, it's great. I'm all gung-ho. But can you imagine these young men who were looking forward to living very important roles in their nation, a nation that has now fallen, a religion, a worship that has now ended, and they're captives of a foreign king who's desecrated their temple and destroyed their people. How do you honor God in circumstances like that? When your world is literally turned upside down. Well, at least right now, our nation has not fallen and we still have a place to worship. Those things haven't happened to us, but many of us go through all kinds of changes, transitions, difficulties in our lives. And I believe that the pattern of faith that we see in this first chapter of Daniel is something worth emulating for every one of us as we face a new challenge. As changes occur to us, we have there's so many kinds in our lives today. We come to an end of one period of a type of schooling and maybe we're going into another and perhaps that involves a move. Our marital status 
sometimes changes. We have a job. We love our job. It ends, and now we are looking for another place. We're living in a time of great cultural shift in our own country all around us. Uh, our world is changing as, as we stand here today. We experience the death and birth of those that we love and who are close to us. And even our own health changes dramatically, sometimes from one day to the next. And we face turmoil and difficulty and a challenge. And we have to ask ourselves, so how do I honor God now in this? Well, I want to point out three things about Daniel and his friends in which in this very difficult moment in the history of their people, and personally a time of tragedy for them, how they brought honor, how they glorified God in a very difficult situation. First, look in verses 5 and 6. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court. Among them from the descendants of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These young men were taken to Babylon to serve the king, Nebuchadnezzar. But before they could do that, they had to actually understand the people that they were going to serve. So they were told, they were given, this, I guess, sort of a bachelor's program. Three years. You're going to study language. You're going to study literature. You're going to learn the wisdom and the thought and the religion of these people in Babylon. And so for three years, they studied hard. It says they were trained. There's diligence, there's discipline in them as they actually strive for excellence. Now, this had to be a little bit painful. They already knew those things about their people and their religion and their wisdom. Now they're being pushed to learn this about the Babylonians. But from the story, it appears they did not rebel against that. They saw this as an opportunity and in verse 17, we're told that God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Their discipline and diligence worked. They achieved excellence in the task that God had given them. Excellence. In times of great difficulty and turmoil, it brings God honor. When his people work hard. When they strive for excellence. Whatever it is that they do. Whether it's adding numbers or arguing before a court or helping the sick or organizing an office. It doesn't matter. You know, Paul mentions it both in the book of Ephesians and in Colossians. That even if we were slaves, we shouldn't do it just to make our master happy. We should do it when he's not watching. We should work hard. We should do it with our whole hearts as if we were doing it for God himself. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it 
with all your mind. Even secular historians admit that this type of Protestant work ethic was the thing that shifted Europe and pushed Europe ahead of the rest of the world 500 years ago. It's the kind of thing that's taking place around the world today as believers in countries where there haven't been many Christians before now rise up and they work hard. They're honest. They do well. And people have to stop and say, well, you know, I don't really like those Christians that much, but here's what you have to give to them. They work hard. They're honest. They're good employees. They're actually good for us. A number of years ago, a number of leading communist officials in the People's Republic of China said, well, we can't declare freedom of religion. We're still communists. But we have to admit that wherever there are a lot of Christians, it's really good for our economy. These people are honest. They work hard. They work hard when you're not watching. (laughs) See, we know why. We know why, because there is one who's always watching. There is one that we're serving no matter what we're doing. Those of us who love God, we give all that we do to Him as an offering of our lives. And that appears to be what Daniel and his three friends did in this situation. They worked hard at learning and they became wise in that midst. And the rest of this story would have been impossible if that had not been foundational in their lives. They honored their God by studying the literature and language of the Babylonians. Then in verse 7, we see something else that happened. The chief official gave them different names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. You know, there's nothing more personal to us than our name, right? It's sort of precious to us. These Hebrew names, the original names of these four young men were very special, I think, on two counts. One is the parents gave it to them. And now they're separated from their families. They may never see those families again, but one thing they at least carried with them on that trip to Babylon, they carried their identity. They carried their name with them. It must have been painful to be told, we don't like your name, we're going to give you a new one. That's understandable. I've lived in countries where people had difficulty even with my simple English name. So in many of those cases, I took a local name that people could remember and knew how to spell and could pronounce. And that was fine with me, but it's understandable. But it must have been painful to know that the name that their parents gave them, maybe named after a grandfather or great-grandfather, those were being stripped away. That probably was hard. But more importantly, all four of the original Hebrew names were references to God Almighty. Every one of those names is a name that derives from either El, as in Elohim, the Lord God, or Lord Adonai. Every, all four of those names are references to their faith. 
to the fact that they're Jews and they're, they're the chosen people and that they follow the Lord God Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're stripped of, in a sense, their religious identity and they're given new names. And guess what? Every one of those new names are also religious by nature. Every one of the new names is a reference to a god of Babylon. But they were in a position where they really couldn't fight this. I mean, this is what the Babylonians decided to call them. Now, what they called each other when it was just the four of them, I don't know. My guess is they called each other by the Hebrew name. But with all of the Babylonians surrounding them, they were now to be called by new names. And there's no sense here that they fought it. They had to adapt and change in a radically different situation from where they had been. But it must have been a bit painful. Adaptation. Adjustment. Again, when I initiate it and it's my idea, it's great, right? But when someone else does it, it's painful. But it happened. They adapted. They adapted. I want you to think for a minute. This is a dangerous moment. This is a dangerous moment for these four and it's a dangerous moment for the people of Judah. These young men, the very best and brightest, are now learning the language and the religion and all the wisdom and the legal system of the Babylonian Empire. Now they've been given new names that refer to the Babylonian gods. Now to a certain extent, you have to go there to adapt and fit in. But it's not very far from there to being completely assimilated and no longer being the people of God, no longer being the chosen, no longer being Jewish. They're that close. You see how dangerous this particular moment is. And that's when we get to verse 8 and we see the third very critical action. Daniel determined... Daniel set his heart, the Hebrew says. Daniel set it in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. Learn from them. Adapt to fit in. And yet, there was a heart issue here. How can I be faithful to God in this new situation? And I believe God told him. It was a heart issue. This is a heart issue. Faithfulness is a heart issue, isn't it? He said it in his heart that he would not defile himself. Now this is interesting from several perspectives. Part of the reason it's interesting is the fact that he has been given an incredibly unusual privilege. The four of them have been invited essentially into the palace. They're not just your average captives. 
They've been brought into the king's palace and they're eating food from Nebuchadnezzar's kitchen. Have you ever felt peer pressure? Or have you ever felt pressure from above? Here are Jewish captives who could be, they could be killed at any time, they could be made just slaves at any time. They've been brought into the palace and offered a great privilege to eat the king's food. But Daniel's heart tells him he can't do it. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine the pressure? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, thank you for the offer of all the wonderful food from your own kitchen. What a great privilege it is for me, just a poor foreign kid. But no thanks. If you read the history of the Babylonian Empire, you would expect there to be one result from an answer like that. He would lose his head. So it's interesting from the, from the sense that there was tremendous pressure to eat this food. More than any peer pressure, I would imagine, than any of us have ever felt. The second thing, though, is that, that, they, that Daniel felt that this food would defile him. That it would make him unclean. And it would dishonor God in his life. Now, obviously, in the test that follows, when they ask to eat only vegetables and to drink only water, there appears to be some major health issues in the test. And many people think that perhaps that's what this whole issue is, but I don't think that's it because that's not the kind of word that we find in verse 8 which says he would defile himself. I don't think that this is primarily about being a vegetarian, even though that is the food that they ate for the 10 days during the test. I believe because he uses the word defile, and that has to do with ritual purity, that Daniel and his friends knew for sure that the meat that was served at the king's table had, did not follow kosher law. They had been taught all their lives not to eat food like this. The animals had not been bled properly. This was unholy food to them as Jews. And because they were in a palace filled with idols, it is most likely, as it's true, even around much of the world today where people worship idols, that the food has been offered to the idols before it's offered to the people. And so on two counts, one, it had not been uh, prepared according to the law of the Torah that these young men knew very well, and it had been offered to the idols in the palace. Daniel, in his heart, knew for sure that he could not eat that food and be faithful to God. And he determined in his heart, I will not do this. Now he goes to the official and asks very humbly. He doesn't announce, my God has told me not to eat any of your nasty food. It's what he was thinking, but it's not what he asked. He said, please, sir, would you please give us, grant us a favor to allow us to eat simpler food, vegetables and water. 
And the official was not so concerned. He didn't have the same issues about defiling, them being defiled. He was mostly concerned, well, if you eat this other food that's not as good as the king's table food, then you'll look weak and unhealthy after 10 days, and then the king will come looking after me because I'm responsible to keep you well and healthy and happy. And so we know in the end, they passed the test and they did well. But none of this would have happened if Daniel hadn't made a decision on his heart conviction. This is what I must do to honor God in this new kind of situation that my people had never even thought of before. He was, in essence, negotiating new rules for the Jewish captives that were going to follow him. I don't know if he thought of it in that way, but this is the first wave. They're setting the standard. Whoever comes behind would certainly be shown these young men and say, look how they've adapted to Babylon. And by standing on his conviction, Daniel helps pave the way for the other Jews who are going to follow to be able to follow God with their whole hearts and not defile themselves in a situation that was new and challenging. So I find in this story of Daniel these three principles that I believe gives all of us a model of how we can honor God in any situation, certainly in any tragic time and any transition, but really any time there's a challenge, one, we strive for excellence in whatever it is we do. This honors God. God is honored when we are good at what we do. If you're retired and you're a neighbor, then just be the best neighbor that you can be. You can honor God by being the best neighbor in your neighborhood, right? It doesn't matter what it is that we do, but be good at it to bring Him glory. The rest of the story wouldn't have happened without that. Secondly, yes, they had to adapt. They were forced to adapt. The situation changed. They had to change with it. And then thirdly, most importantly... They sought the Lord, and in their heart, they knew the things that they must do and the things they must not do, even if everyone else around the king's table was eating that food. Be faithful to God, no matter the risk, no matter what it's going to cost. And they and actually, Daniel risked everything here. He risked everything by standing his ground. All of the wonderful things that happen in the captivity and in the rest of this book are built on this beginning. God calls each of us to honor him in whatever circumstances, situation, change, transition, tragedy, disaster that we find ourselves in. And we can honor Him in any situation that we face in this life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before You acknowledging that You're holy. For we see in this story that Your people were so unholy You had to bring a disaster upon them to get their attention. 
And I pray that will not happen to us. I pray that we will be faithful. That we will walk with you and listen to you. And whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, Lord God, we know that you can lead us and use us and be glorified in us. Help us to excel for your glory, not ours. Help us to change and adjust and adapt as we need to as our world changes around us. But Lord, help us listen to you and set in our hearts that we will not be defiled by all the things in the world around us. That we will stand our ground, that we will say, this is something I will do and this is something I will not do for the glory of God. Be glorified in us and give us the courage to follow this model from Daniel and his friends. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.